Happy Thanksgiving. Hope your holiday was safe, relaxing, and delicious. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. He sent the Vatican a letter asking to be laicized, that is, to leave priestly orders to um, end his clerical life, as it were. The second season of HBO's The Vow just wrapped up. It focused on the trial of Nexium leader Keith Raniere and the events and people surrounding it. We'll talk to the lead prosecutor, Maura Penza, about the series and her reflections on the case. To be reliving a lot of it is just a, a truly fascinating experience. And we'll discuss 400 years of immigration history in the United States with the author of a new book that examines the role it's played in the evolution of the nation. And one of the things I think is particularly fascinating about American immigration history is this tension between the United States being a welcoming country and it being a country that contains skepticism and sometimes outright opposition. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's discuss now what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. We are back again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. We'll talk about the top headlines this week. Let's start with the fact that uh, New York State Supreme Court Justice ordered that the Archdiocese of New York turn over thousands of pages of internal records related to investigations it did on former Albany Diocese Bishop Howard Hubbard. Tell us what is going on there. Yeah, this is actually the second interesting Howard Hubbard-related news of the week. But to get to this one, this is um, part of the discovery action in a case that was brought under the state's Child Victims Act by an anonymous woman who claims that she was sexually abused by a number of priests and by um, a former bishop, Howard Hubbard. Hubbard, of course, has robustly denied all allegations against him of sexual abuse. He is named in several Child Victims Act cases at this point, but he, he denies all of them. And the documents in question here relate to the archdiocese's investigation of Hubbard from years ago. And the archdiocese of New York claimed that, you know, it would uh, violate their First Amendment rights and the fact that the the church's uh, senior leaders have a right to uh, to the privacy of this type of an investigation. And the judge basically said that it was flawed to argue that documents pertaining to an investigation of a bishop should have a higher level of secrecy or privacy around them than those covering uh, a church investigation, which would essentially be, you know, kind of an employee investigation, as it were, of a priest, which 
all courts have determined are open for discovery in a civil matter, especially a civil matter of this type. In other words, what is good for the priest is good for the bishop. As noted, we're talking about 1,400 pages of documents. The court said that some of them could be withheld, but uh, the judge is going to look at them in camera, and we will see at some point in the future what the public will be able to see from those. The judge's ruling came just days after it was revealed, it was announced by the former bishop uh, that he sent the Vatican a letter asking to be laicized, that is to leave priestly orders, to um, end his clerical life, as it were. Uh, he is 84 years old. He has, of course, been unable to perform any priestly duties since the initial allegations were made against him when the Child Victims Act look-back window opened, that is when uh, these cases could be filed that, that had been previously time-barred by the statute of limitations. And this is essentially um, Hubbard sort of bowing to the fact that it is quite likely that these cases are going to go on forever there or for a very long time, at least making it highly unlikely he would be able to function as a priest again. And he wrote in a statement that he, that he released last Friday, that Brendan Lyons, who has been just doing yeoman's work covering all of these cases involving the Albany diocese, Hubbard wrote, I had hoped that in my retirement, I might be able to continue to serve our community as a priest. I am not able to do so, however, because of a church policy that prohibits any priest accused of sexual abuse from functioning publicly as a priest, even if the allegations are false, as they are in my case. And I'm sure we will be talking more about it as the news develops uh, on this podcast. All right, moving on. Back in September, we actually talked about this on the podcast as well. We talked about the remarkable turn of events in the case of Nauman Hussein. Uh, he is the operator of the limo company that put the doomed vehicle on the road, killed 20 people in Schoharie in 2018. The plea deal that he made to avoid prison time was suddenly reversed back in August, and a trial date was set for May. But this week, there was more developments. So can you tell us more? Yeah, this is a, a motion that was filed by Nauman Hussein's attorneys asking the state appellate division to grant a stay in the case that can keep it from going to trial, which is tentatively scheduled to begin in May, and force uh, Supreme Court Justice Peter Lynch, who is now handling the criminal case against Nauman Hussein, but was not previously when this plea deal was struck, to reverse his decision to toss out that plea deal. Schoharie County District Attorney Susan Mallory has noted in uh, comments about this case and conversations that she's had with victims' families that, well, this is a tough case. Um, there is the, the question of whether or not repairs were uh, done in, in good faith by a repair shop up in uh, Saratoga Springs. That definitely complicates the case, but there is no question that Nauman Hussein um, took actions that prevented this limo from being taken off the road, which was a determination that, that state officials had made that, that this vehicle should not be on the road. We will see what appellate division says about this or if Nauman Hussein will be able to walk away with a no jail plea deal in a case that involves the death of 20 people. 
Our own Larry Rulson will be following that. Highly recommend if you have time to go back and listen to our episode from from January of this year uh, when we spoke to Larry and New York Magazine writer Ben Ryder Howe about this story. All right, uh, moving on. The nation has been beset by yet more mass shootings this week in Colorado and Virginia. But this week in the Capital Region, we also saw several incidences of gun violence, uh, and one of them involved uh, Saratoga police shooting a Vermont sheriff's deputy outside a barroom on Broadway there. What's what's the story? Yeah, a very strange episode from the wee hours of um, last Sunday morning, where police came upon an ongoing uh, dispute between this Rutland County sheriff's deputy named Vito Castelnova and a group of people from Utica uh, in which uh, several people were already injured. The deputy allegedly had his weapon out. Police called on him to drop it. They say that he turned around while holding the weapon and they opened fire. Castelnova is recovering. As we tape this, no one has died from their injuries, though, of course, several were injured. It is uh, definitely an extremely messy situation. It raises questions about what Castelnova was doing armed at a bar. He is a local guy, a graduate of the College of St. Rose, and has apparently, according to the Rutland County Sheriff's Office, no disciplinary record. He is now off the force, at least temporarily without pay, while this matter is being investigated. All right. More on that on timesunion.com. One last thing I want to mention. This is the time of the year when we publish our special Capital Region Give section. What can you tell us about this year's? This is an annual tradition where really the whole staff contributes to our special Capital Region Give section that uh, highlights the good work of nonprofits across the region and the, the people, and in some cases, the animals whose lives they improve and even in some cases save. You know, I, I would direct everybody to go to timesunion.com slash gives, uh, where all of these stories can be found. And they focus on organizations as diverse as, as Hearts Herd, which is an animal sanctuary over in Rensselaer County, to the Flying Deer Nature Center, that's an educational endeavor, Brightside Up Child Care Resource Center serving the entire capital region, housing groups, groups with uh, that work with those battling mental illness. Obviously, in this season of giving, we hope that people will take a look at these stories and recognize the good that is being done by uh, these individuals and organizations within our region and and hopefully, you know, open your wallet to to support them as well. Some great uplifting stuff this year. All right, Casey, thank you for joining me. We'll check back in with you next week. But before I let you go, I want you to introduce for us an interview that uh, aired on our sister podcast, Nexium on Trial, this week. What can you tell us about that interview and who did we talk to? What did we talk about? We spoke to Moira Penza, who is the former uh, assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District, that is Brooklyn and Long Island, who is the lead prosecutor in the case that brought down the leadership of Nexium, the shadowy capital region-based organization that you might have heard of, unless you have been living in a cave for the last 
well, certainly five years, but in the capital <laughs> region, probably going back much further than that, especially if you read the Times Union. For the past six weeks, you and me and the outstanding Rob Gavin, our Cops and Courts reporter, have been offering uh, sort of weekly responses to the second season of HBO's documentary series, The Vow, which has this season has been built around the federal trial of Keith Ranieri, the leader of Nexium, the man known as Vanguard within that very deeply weird group. It was a, a real pleasure to talk to Moira Penza, who offered insight on everything from why it was the Eastern District as opposed to, oh, I don't know, the Northern District U.S. Attorney's Office that ultimately brought charges against the capital region-based organization Nexium, as well as questions about the divide between victims and perpetrators in in this case, which involved the victimization of, of so many women, including some victims who went on to do bad acts themselves. It was a great conversation. We were so glad to talk to her. Absolutely. Now let's listen to a short segment from that episode. Boyer, thanks so much for doing this. It's great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. What has it been like watching this season of HBO's The Vow that, of course, we've been talking about for the last five weeks? This series of episodes has largely been built around the prosecution that you, with your team, kind of structured and executed. I mean, I don't think it's going going too far to say that you, in part, scripted this this season of The Vow. You know, it's been very surreal I, is really the only way to describe it, um, especially because a lot of the filming that I did for The Vow was quite a while ago. I'd say a lot of it I filmed in January 2020. So really to be reliving a lot of it is just a, a truly fascinating experience. I think having somebody else telling the story of this trial is something that occasionally can be difficult, even though I do think on the whole it was an important uh, season. And I think that there are many ways in which they did a fantastic job. But um, there's always more to tell. You know, these witnesses were on the stand for days. There were tons of exhibits. I know exactly why I did certain things. I... Um, you know, sometimes there's tension that's built into the show that I don't really think was tension at trial, for example. So all of those things are very interesting. And I, I will say um, one of the reasons that I have appreciated your podcast is I think Rob was there living it every day, too. And so I think sometimes my exact thought will you know, pop up in the podcast, which I've appreciated. Did you buy... Mark Agnifilo's uh, kind of argument near the end of of sort of what he what he told Raniere, I think probably as he was getting close to to the verdict, which was, well, you know, there was an argument to be made about about Nexium and about the things you did, but once the sexual abuse of a minor and child pornography is introduced into that equation, the conversation is pretty much over. I do think a case that includes allegations of child exploitation and where you actually have images of child pornography, that that is a difficult case to defend against. But I don't think, 
I don't think that the case against him was not strong before that. I mean, I think that you have to remember all of those allegations, not only about Das, but about the trafficking of Daniela, Daniela um, being being in the room. Also, a lot of additional what I would call smaller charges, but that were also very much part and parcel of the enterprise were all fairly clear. I mean, it was pretty easy to prove up certain of those charges, to prove up the elements of those predicate acts otherwise. So I I think that that's something it's interesting to hear said. And of course, as a prosecutor who has dealt in cases involving children, I think that that is something that is very difficult for a jury to listen to. But I also think one of the reasons it becomes a really hard case to win is because there's concrete evidence of abuse. So a lot of times when you think about any sort of sex crime and a lot of things happen behind closed doors and a lot of people don't uh, fully understand victim behavior and that can be confusing to, to people and to juries, but when you have pictures of an underage minor, that's a that's a charge that is pretty clear cut. Was there ever a thought of putting Nancy on the stand or was she seen as being far too compromised because of everything that she had done? There was a thought at a certain point and in her sentencing, at her sentencing, it was acknowledged that she had agreed to provide information to the government. By the time we were considering that, I think it was, I think it was too late. Um, You know, as I've talked about, really, there is a point in time where you have to decide what is this trial going to look like. And for somebody to be an effective witness on the stand, they do need to be able to take full ownership of everything bad that they had done. So even things that they have not pled guilty to, they need to be able to own. So I just think we had all of the parts that we needed from what Nancy's testimony could be um, from other witnesses. So I think it was, I think we were all pretty quickly in agreement. Um, She did provide certain pieces of curriculum that I do think were that highlighted some of these things we've been talking about in terms of um, abuse of children um, that I had not seen before. I mean, we're getting very in the weeds, but when our in our last, we really bookended that video that I think is so important of Keith Ranieri giving that teaching that lesson on you know some children not minding abuse and does it matter whether they're you know adult like and then Nancy actually giving that to the class that has those underage girls in it that was something we had already but then there were additional pieces of curriculum that you know backed that up um but ultimately I also think she's a very and I think we see this in the vow it's a she's a very difficult person for a jury to relate to. The the reality is Lauren was such an important witness for our trial. And I think having Nancy on the stand, one of the things that was a, a biggest concern to me is that people would really 
dislike her and really um, in some ways find it difficult to credit her because of the fact that she brought her daughter into this and really encouraged that relationship with Keith Ranieri for such a long time, even knowing and having had these experiences with Keith Ranieri herself. Um, And she really was instrumental in a lot of the harms that happened. So, you know, going around and yamming Keith Ranieri's girlfriends or, you know, partners when he felt that they were out of line um, and so much more. So I think there were there were a lot of potential downsides to putting her on the stand, especially in contrast to Lauren, which I don't think you because you're only hearing. We heard some of Lauren's testimony um, in the vow. But I think if you had really heard from Lauren herself in the vow, I think I think even what sympathy people have for Nancy, I think it's harder to have it if you're hearing from Lauren herself. To hear more of this interview with Maura Penza, check out our sister podcast, Nexium on Trial, at timesunion.com slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can learn more about all of the topics and the issues that we discuss here on The Eagle at timesunion.com. After the break, the United States has a long history of immigration. We're talking about 400 years worth. We'll talk to one of the authors of a new book chronicling the role it's played in the evolution of America. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. It's hard to talk about American history without mentioning the role immigration has played in its development in the last, oh, 400 years. That's the topic of University at Albany history professor Carl Bontempo's new book, Immigration and American History. The book takes a deep dive into patterns of immigration to the United States over hundreds of years and how that migration has shaped and reshaped the country. I recently spoke to Bontempo to learn more. Here's part of our conversation. How did the genesis for this current book, Immigration and American History, how did that start for you? To be perfectly honest, we started thinking about this book in 2015. And that's a year when somebody else shows up in the American consciousness really talking a lot about immigration. And that somebody was uh, Donald Trump. And so he arrives on the scene with very particular uh, and pointed views about immigration, many of which are, frankly, ahistorical. And we thought, you know what, one thing we can add to this conversation, uh, and we didn't know, obviously, that he would win uh, the presidency in 2016, but... That's a whole other it, podcast. That's a whole... Yeah, that is, right. But but nonetheless, you know, immigration was going to be an issue over the coming years. And we thought, you know, this is a moment when historians should weigh in with some of their thinking about how we can understand this history so that we can better understand where we are today. 
in the United States vis-a-vis immigration. As you said previously, this is a long history. Are there any specific periods or eras where, you know, immigration history is particularly, I don't want to say one era is more important than the other, but one that stands out, you know, that that maybe readers should really pay attention to, um, you know, given today's kind of climate around immigration? So one of the tensions in the book, and one of the things I think is particularly fascinating about American immigration history, is this tension between the United States being a welcoming country to newcomers, and it being a country that contains skepticism and sometimes outright opposition to the arrival of newcomers. And I think sometimes when we when we sort of do the too easy story of immigration that maybe we get taught in elementary school, and then kind of like, you know, sort of sets the foundation for everything that comes after, is this notion, right, that the United States is a nation of immigrants, and that it always welcomes immigrants and newcomers, and they come in and and they adjust, and then they become the next wave of Americans. And then they live Um, out the American dream, right? Exactly, right. And there's a lot of truth to that story. And there are a lot of stories in this book about folks who do exactly that. And I think it oftentimes tends to dominate our understandings of American immigration history. And the problem with that is not that it's not true, but that it's incomplete. There's this counter history or this counter trend that creates this tension, which is that there's always been skepticism, outright opposition to the arrival of newcomers to the United, in the United States. And that the only way to really understand the history and to understand where we are today is to understand that that sort of almost titanic battle <laughs> is part of American history and American society, and it was early on and it is today. So one of the a great concrete example of this is a set of laws that many folks don't understand or remember or even know occurred. And that is a set of laws in the 1920s called the National Origins Quota Laws. And basically what these laws did in the 1920s is they set up a quota system where certain countries were favored and got a lot of immigration visas and other countries were disfavored and some were banned from having their their citizens come to the United States. So these quota laws passed in the 1920s, really encourage immigration from Northwestern Europe, like England, some from Ireland, and sort of the Nordic countries. And then it squashes down and makes it really hard for folks from Italy or Hungary or Austria or Poland to get immigration visas. And then it basically bans immigration from Asia and Africa. Those laws are in effect until 1965, and they're not phased out until 1968. I think it's interesting, too, that, you know, that time period, the 1920s through the 1960s, encompasses World War II, right? When there was quite a bit going on in the world, specifically in the 40s, right? The 30s and 40s. You want to kind of explain that? I think that's interesting. Right. And I think one of the ways that we can understand why the United States was so unwelcoming to those refugees from Nazi Germany and and folks fleeing Europe generally during 
the 1930s and early 1940s. One of the reasons why is because of the existence of this quota system that essentially gave very, very few visas to certain types of of newcomers who were trying to get into the United States. On top of that, you had economic concerns, right? Because there was this thing called the Great Depression and Americans weren't too keen on newcomers coming in anyway. So that tended to depress numbers even more. And then on top of that, you had some very anti-Semitic State Department bureaucrats who were completely opposed to the admission of Jews from Europe on all grounds because of their anti-Semitism. And so this keeps even those quotas, which are artificially low, it keeps the quotas unfilled during the 1930s. And this does much to explain why the United States, we look back on it and were frankly appalled by the lack of a robust response to one of the great humanitarian tragedies uh, in all of history. So after 1968, then what happens? In 1965, President Lyndon Johnson convinces Congress to pass this sort of immigration reform law. And keep in mind, this is at the moment of the civil rights movement, when Americans are really thinking hard about eradicating racially discriminatory laws. So what comes in in its place is a system that maintains kind of global caps. They're actually hemispheric caps on the number of newcomers who can come in each year, but gets rid of the quota system. And it essentially replaces the quota system with what we might call a preference system. Um, Preference in those cases goes to folks who already have family members in the United States, what we call family reunification. And then preference also goes to folks who have job skills. They can solve a uh, employment shortage or they bring some sort of valuable economic component to the United States. And that's basically the system that we have today. Let me switch gears for a second here. So you're talking about legal immigration here, right? There's a big difference between legal and illegal, especially in the current political climate. So how do you kind of address that in your book? The terms that that historians and scholars tend to use nowadays are authorized and unauthorized immigration. And we talk about the rise of an unauthorized population in the United States. Um, And that really becomes an issue in the 1970s into the 1980s, okay? And it continues to be a fairly large population, although it has, the unauthorized population has leveled off in the last sort of 10 years or so, given the financial crisis, the economic problems, and then a lot of the border policies that uh, both Democrats and Republicans have authored. I think what we're interested in there is thinking about, uh, in the book, thinking about a couple of things. One is sort of clarifying that when folks enter, sometimes they enter with authorization. Oftentimes they enter with authorization and then they overstay that authorization. So it tells you that these categories of authorized and unauthorized are fairly fungible and they may stay because they have to earn more money They have to 
care for a sick family member. They have children who have been born in the United States while they were here as an authorized immigrant. And then they figure my child has a better chance if I stay. I guess what I'm trying to point out there is that some of this authorized, unauthorized dynamic is the way that the American economy is functioning and the needs of that economy. Um, and I think in some ways, one lesson might be that, that American law and policy hasn't quite caught up to all of the fascinating dynamics that lead individuals to choose to come to the United States, either in an authorized or unauthorized fashion. So where, where do refugees come in, in in your studies of immigration history? In law, in American law, uh, refugees are a separate category, right? We have a distinct definition of refugee. It comes into being in 1980, and it is still under the current legal system. Like that's that law in 1980 is what governs largely how many refugees and can come to the United States every year and in what ways are they going to arrive and in what legal status are they going to arrive. The problem is, and the challenge is, that it's kind of hard to draw a bright line between what is a refugee who is fleeing persecution and can't return home for fear of their own safety mm -hmm. versus an immigrant who wants to come to the United States because frankly, their circumstances at home aren't very good. But American law sees them as not quite refugees because they're not suffering from acute political or social or religious or racial persecution. Mm -hmm. There's a strong element of racism there as well. Absolutely. There's this racial backbeat to it as well, which complicates matters even more. You know, you've studied all this history. You said 400 years of history. Like, do you have any kind of idea of how the future might play out? You know, maybe like the immediate future in the next 50 years or so, something like that. You know, will you see similar trends to what we've seen thus far over, you know, the decades that you studied? Do you think something new and surprising might be in store for us? What, what are your thoughts on the future? I would say there's a couple of things I would point out. One is that if the trends hold as they are in terms of who's coming to the United States. We're seeing increasing numbers of folks from Asia. And here I'm thinking of China and India. Um, we're still seeing large numbers of individuals from Mexico and Central America wanting to come. And this is going to continue to diversify American society. So I can sort of see that trend continuing. And that makes some sense. The great wild card in all of this, I think, is climate change. Mm -hmm. And I think the way in which climate change is going to change migratory patterns, and it's going to place on the United States's plate a whole new set of questions about who should the United States welcome and in what fashion, given the huge numbers of individuals who, it seems, are going to be forced to move because of environmental catastrophe. And then the last point I would make about this is, and I don't know if this is hopeful or pessimistic. Um, <laughs> maybe a little bit of <laughs> Yeah, maybe it is both. I think what we need to acknowledge is that immigration and immigration law, especially in the way the United States deals with newcomers, are the product of a series of choices. 
that we make on their series of choices that we've made over hundreds of years. But that means it's a man-made system. It's a human-made system. It's an American-made system. And if we make it, we can unmake it. Whether we have the political, the cultural, the social will and patience and thoughtfulness to do that thinking and unmaking or remaking, I think that's an open question. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler for his contribution to this episode. And stay tuned, we've got a brand new podcast series by the Times Union that's debuting very soon. Here's a taste of what's in store. It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Coming soon wherever you listen to podcasts.